Good morning. We're going to read all of uh, James chapter 5 this morning. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have gotten you, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be like evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earthly and the late rains. Excuse me, receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins uh, to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it may not rain. For three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back the sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house. Amen? Amen. Good to be in the Lord's house this morning. If you have your Bibles open, we'll be looking at them. James 5, 13 through the end of the chapter. How many of you enjoyed our study time in the book of James? It's been rich, hasn't it? It's been a wonderful, wonderful learning and instruction from the Lord through his servant, James. And we're grateful for that. I'm going to ask if you would to join me in prayer as we begin this morning. Father God, we ask that you would do what only you can do, and that is open the eyes of your people to be able to see And open the ears of your people to be able to hear. Grant us understanding. Speak to us this morning through your Holy Spirit. That we might not only gain information about what your word says. But that we may be transformed. And that we might truly live what this text says. 
I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Prayer is the most precious thing. Wing Shi Li and another man were arrested back in December of 2012 in China. What was their crime? Operating a new Christian bookstore in the province. Two men are serving a two-year prison sentence. And when asked what her needs are, Kai Hong Lee, that's Wing Shi's wife, who now is at home with their two children. She was asked what her needs were at this time. She said she needs nothing but prayer from her brothers and sisters. Prayer, she said, is the most precious thing. How does prayer become the most precious thing when your spouse is locked up for promoting Christian literature? How does prayer become the most precious thing when you now have to provide for two children alone and are having to constantly respond to the mark that has now been placed on your family as a result of your husband's prison sentence? How do you explain these things to your children? That dad's in jail. Now, children's thought is jail is where bad people go. How is it then that dad is in jail? I thought following Jesus was a good thing. How could God let my daddy sit in prison for following Jesus? You see the battle that's going on for Wing Shi and Kai Hong Lee and their family. Wing Shi is standing for the truth of the gospel, desiring to get God's word out to others in China. The government doesn't want Wing Shi promoting Christ. Do you stand upon the truth or do you allow others to turn you away from the truth? Do you pray in faith or point fingers of blame and complain about your situation? You see, for for Kai Hong to acknowledge that all she needs right now from brothers and sisters is prayer. It sheds light on her perspective of God, I believe. How God works. See, she recognizes that he is a God who goes before their family. A God who is mighty to save. A God who is powerful. And that the prayers of the saints matter in the midst of trials. James is concluding his epistle here as he is moved and led by the Holy Spirit, drawing attention to God's power on one hand and man's responsibility on the other hand. That's how he closes. God is the one who works mightily through the prayers of his people. God is the one who saves souls and as his, as his people are, are reaching out with the truth of the gospel. God's power is effective in the lives of God's people who operate by faith from the well of God's word and in the strength of God's spirit. As we look at 13 through, eight, 13 through 20, we see that James is going to leave the church with a magnificent view of God. A call to prayer. 
and an encouragement to guard the truth of the gospel. A couple questions to maybe think through as we're going through the text. What does this text have to say about God and his power? And what does this text have to say about the church's ongoing responsibility? James 5, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. There's two Q&As. There's a third one here we'll get to in verse 14, but two right up front in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Now, if we're reading the text, this is one of the beauties of uh, expository preaching going through a book of the Bible. Last week, in chapter 5, verse 10, we encountered the prophets. He puts forward the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of what? As an example of suffering and patience. Here in verse 13, he's asking the question, is anyone among you suffering? Same word used here as it was in verse 10. And I got to thinking, does he ask the question just in case any might be suffering? Or does he ask the question because he knows that the church is experiencing such suffering? I believe it's the latter. They're in the midst of the trial. We read about some of the oppression in the beginning of chapter 5. One of the reasons James begins the letter by talking about trials. Count it joy when you're in the midst of trials. That's how he begins the letter. The church is in the midst of it. Notice he doesn't just ask the question. He provides the answer. He says, let him pray. Or let him continue to pray. Let him keep on praying. Individual believers experiencing suffering are called to ongoing prayer. Why pray when you find yourself in affliction or in trouble? What manner of prayer is called for? What manner of prayer are you quick to turn to? Does your prayer sometimes come out like this? Lord, get me out of this situation. Lord, rescue me from this terrible situation that I'm in. Perhaps the prayer called for in the time of suffering and affliction is not necessarily, Lord, rescue me, but instead, Lord, strengthen me to patiently endure this trial. See, these prophets, going back to 5 verse 10, they may have prayed for God to rescue them. They may have done that. But, but I believe they prayed often for the Lord to help them patiently endure the situation that they found themselves in. I believe that they prayed that God would get the glory in the midst of their suffering and in the midst of their affliction. We see that early church did that as we read through the book of Acts. I believe many assume one kind of prayer when they're faced with suffering. If you're suffering as a Christian, you need not be ashamed, the Bible says. But need to remember, this is a reminder, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. In the midst of our suffering, we need not be ashamed if it's for the Lord's sake, the Lord's cause. If we're bearing reproach for the Lord's name, we need not be ashamed. And we need to remember that in the midst of that, we are to give Him glory. 
Now, many of you like the idea of giving God glory. We're all for giving God glory, apart from the suffering situation that we might find ourselves in. But even in your suffering, you are called to give God glory. Easy thing to do? No. Called to do it? Yes. You see, you must be careful, each one of us. We need to be careful to allow God's will to shape and inform your prayers. You know, I was looking back and I was, I was interested as I was looking at, in, in Exodus chapter 2. I was going back to, at the end of chapter 2, when the people were going through some hard times, they were in bondage. And in 23 through 25 of Exodus 2, it says, It happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. I believe it's very intentional here about letting us know that while the people cried out to God in the midst of their suffering, God heard their cry. He looked upon them. He remembered them. He acknowledged them. And then I fast forwarded to the time when Moses first went to Pharaoh. Chapter 5, Moses and afterward Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh. Chapter 5, verse 1. Thus says the Lord God, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Huh, it didn't quite work like Moses may have thought it was going to work. See, when you forward just a few verses in chapter 5, I want to take you to verse 20. You remember what happened when, when the people were there and, and when he's telling Pharaoh, hey, let my people go, let God's people. Pharaoh didn't necessarily like that. In fact, what he does, you remember, he kind of cranks up the heat a little bit. And now they're going to produce more stuff with the same amount. They have to produce a greater amount when they don't, they don't get any extra stuff. They got to come up with more. Harder labor. And so at the end of the day's work, verse 20, as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. Can you guess what kind of confrontation this would have been? Look what it says. They said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So what's Moses do? He returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you've sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Church, this is very instructive about prayer, about what we're talking about here this morning. This passage opened my eyes to be able to see some things here about prayer in times of suffering. First of all, the text says that God heard his children's groanings, sufferings, when they cried out. God heard him. That's the end of chapter 2. And then once Moses completed his tutorial with God, you know, he's complaining and God says, here's what you need to hear. He, keep, he finally, and then he goes. Chapter 5 is his first encounter with Pharaoh. He finally goes to Pharaoh. Nothing seems to go according to Moses' plan. We see that the children of Israel, after having their workload ramped up, 
they encounter Moses and Aaron and they immediately begin to point their fingers at them as the cause. Moses and Aaron, you're the one who's causing this affliction. Little did they realize that God had been at work on their behalf. Moses then goes back to the Lord and he says, Lord, Lord, why? Why have you brought trouble upon this people? In other words, that's code for, I thought things were going to get better. Question number two, Lord, why have you sent me? Hey, hey, have you heard what they're, they're blaming me for this? You sent me, they're blaming me. I didn't sign up for this. Ever since I showed up to Pharaoh, he said he's done evil to this people. God, it seems like things are getting worse. And besides, you said you were going to deliver your people. Come on, God, do your part. Some interesting things are about prayer. The children of Israel grumbled at Moses and Aaron, and yet they failed to see. Here's what they failed to see. That their prayers had been heard by God. Moses was quick to go back to the Lord, and he too is questioning. Church, how often do you treat prayer the same way? How often when you're dealing with suffering do you discount God's presence in your situation? When he doesn't show up on your timetable or take care of your affliction in the way that you thought he should, what's your response? How do you treat God in your prayers? Are you most concerned about your will being done or his? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. You know, there's an element of trust here, isn't there? Dependence upon God to do with this situation what he deems best. Can you trust him with your suffering? He may very well be at work. Keep praying. Keep trusting. Set your hope in God alone. And know that it is his desire to conform you into the image of his son, Jesus. It is your responsibility to trust him. Amen? Trust him. The second question. Cheerful? Is anyone cheerful? That seems like an interesting question on the flip side of, is anyone among you suffering? We tend to kind of like that question. Is anyone among you cheerful? We can think about happy things, positive things, good things, cheerful. Well, what he's asking here, it refers not to the outward circumstances, but to the cheerfulness and happiness of heart that comes regardless of whether we're in a bad situation or a good situation. Paul is on the ship and the ship is breaking down and it's going to fall apart. And there were lots of people on board this ship. Remember as he's making his journey to Rome? The ship's going down. It's, 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 just, it's, going, to, it's going to happen. 
And in the middle of it all, Paul says in Acts 27, he says, take heart, men. That word take heart, by the way, is the same, same word here. Cheerful. See, Paul was telling these men to take heart. In the midst of, was it a good situation? Was it, oh, I like this. No, they were frightened. They were scared. They were in the midst of a ship that's about to go down. And Paul says, take heart. You see, when you're in a situation, whether it's a bad one in this case, if you have the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, you can still be cheerful. And I believe we're called to be cheerful. In context... The church, as we think about the context of James, the church might be able to resonate with suffering and affliction in light of the trials that they were in. But I I was wondering as I was thinking about the question, is anyone cheerful? Is the scripture submitting the question here as a test? I, I just wondered about that. Is the question a reminder of what should be? If you're cheerful in heart, then you should be what? Singing. A singing church. What are the implications? Ought not the church be made up of people who have undergone a heart change? A heart change. New creation kind of change. Having the spirit of Christ in them, the church lives with joy regardless of circumstances they might find themselves in. So the question here, I believe, is a good one. Whether you're undergoing suffering or not, the question calls to mind what ought to be in the life of one following Jesus. Do you have a cheerful heart, brothers and sisters? If so, then you are called to sing. Now, we live in a world today, in a world of technology. Most people, you know what they like to do today? They just like to listen. We're called to sing. Sing. That's what we're called to do. With cheerful heart, we're called to sing. Singing unto the Lord, grateful for his goodness in our lives. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought. Since who? Since Jesus came into my heart. We got a lot to sing about, don't we? See, singing to the Lord reflects a heart of gratitude and praise. And singing, much like prayer, is an avenue of worship, is it not? Are you singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord? Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Well, let's keep moving. Next question. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The word here, sick, asteneo. The word for sick in verse 14 is, is actually a different word in 15 when we get to 15. Different word for sick. 14 here will give us a little piece of it. And 15 will give us another piece of what James, I believe, is, is speaking to when he talks about the sick. But we see this idea of, of sick being put forth in John's gospel. Chapter 4, verse 46. There was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum, right? In John chapter 11, we see it uh, three times in succession. We see a certain man was sick. You might remember Lazarus. Remember he was sick? He was sick at Bethany and, and the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And so it was... That Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Verse 3, therefore the sisters went to Jesus and they said, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Okay, this is the idea. He's sick. He's not well. Acts 9, Dorcas found herself sick. It's interesting that 
the word used in John 11 with Lazarus, we see his sickness led to death. Yes, he was raised, but his sickness did lead to death. With Dorcas, her sickness also led to death. So while this word here is characterized in elsewhere in Scripture as one who is physically not well, not doing well, I believe context here in James would cause us to ask the source of one's sickness. What's going on in the lives of the scattered church that might lead to sickness, that might complement this not doing well idea? I think we think context and we also couple the context with a few other questions. First of all, why the need to call the elders of the church in this situation? And for what purpose has the Lord established elders in his church? Well, we've put this forward before. It's worth repeating. But elders in general, in short, guard, feed, lead, and care. Or shepherd the body. Acts 6, verse 4. We see that the apostles here, as they were setting apart some men to take care of a food distribution issue in the church. Acts 6.4 says, We will continually, continually give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Hebrews 13.17 talks about how those who rule, those who govern the elders in the church, they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. So the one who is sick, the one who is weary, the one who is worn down in battle needs to be strengthened. And calling the elders of the church is a responsibility of the one, according to the text, is a responsibility of that one who is sick. And yet it is a privilege of the elders to oblige. The elders of the church are intended to be, intended to be men of faith whose lives reflect Christ. The call here in James 5.14 seems antiquated, perhaps, because so few people operate this way anymore. Calling the elders when there's one who is weary, one who is sick. The sick person calls the elders and they come and they pray. The text says they pray over him, implying perhaps that the sick person is is bedridden. He's unable to get out of the house. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. For clarity's sake, just working through some of these particular phrases, the call for the elders of the church. Again, the elders are intended to be, as God has designed it to be, the spiritual leaders in the church. They are to be men who are examples to the rest of the flock. High bar. Noble task is what it says in Timothy 3. Men whose prayers would serve to strengthen and encourage and comfort. I believe it's also significant in the text that there's a call here for the elders to come and pray. Because it calls attention to how you are connected in the body of Christ. If you're a part of the church, in this sense a local assembly. You are under the care of elders who love you and care for you. And desire to tend to your soul. Tend to your soul. And I believe this is one way that God desires to use the elders in his church to pray for the sick, the spiritually weak, the needy, those in need of being lifted up. 
says, let them pray over him. Why, why have the elders pray? You know, we, we just heard Hebrews 13, 17, but there's also a passage in Hebrews 13, verse 7. Gives us some pictures, some handle for why it may be a good idea. Because here in verse 15, it's going to talk about prayer of faith. Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. Whose faith follow. Considering the outcome of their conduct. Church, I hope that these are the kinds of men that you would desire to come and pray for you if you were sick, weary in the battle. It says that they are to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's what they did. They, they came, they prayed, and anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The, the oil was used for, for two primary purposes, for, for a practical and a religious reason. Uh, we see in, in the scriptures that oil was used uh, for medicinal purposes. In fact, we see the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember when he, when he takes that, that man and he takes him to the inn? Remember what he does? He puts some oil on him and he also gives him some wine, some antiseptic, just helping take care of his needs, right? It's medicinal. But doing some study and some reading, it seems like the oil was also very practical and it was used from anything from toothaches to paralysis. Okay, I mean, just from a very practical use of the oil. But we see that it was also used for religious purposes. In fact, this particular verse is used by some uh, to uphold uh, in a sacramental way. That this would be a sacrament. um, Having the purpose of removing any remnant of sin and of strengthening the soul of the dying. You see, it's used as a sacrament, which is kind of interesting. It's used as a sacrament in light of the person about to die. But if we read the context, we see that that's not the context. That's not what it's saying. The idea is that the elders are going and they're praying over him, anointing him with oil. For what purpose? Knowing that he's going to die? You see, the better idea, the better use, we think about the oil and the anointing with oil, is to think about it and consider it as a symbolic It's a physical action, no doubt, in terms of rubbing the oil, anointing one with oil who is sick. But it's representative of being set apart unto the Lord. One writer said that anointing frequently symbolizes the consecration of persons or things unto God. And so as elders prayed, they would anoint the sick person in order to symbolize that the person was being set apart for God's special attention and care. By the very ones that are set apart by God to provide that care. The elders... Not that the church doesn't do it. We'll see just a moment. The church has a responsibility as well. All of the church has a responsibility. He's speaking right now specifically to the elders of the church. This is what they're to do. So there's a physical action. There's anointing the sick with oil. There's coupled with the symbolic purpose to set that sick person apart for God's special attention, God's care. Now there's nothing magical about the oil. Sort of like when one gets baptized, there's nothing magical about the water. James is not advocating here in the text that prayer always has to be accompanied with oil. We see through the examples of Jesus and we see the apostles that healing oftentimes came without the use of oil. So the oil is secondary to prayer in the text. Prayer is the main thing. Can we get that? Prayer is the main thing. 
What kind of prayer? Look at verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This prayer of faith. Faith. Wholehearted, unwavering commitment to God. Faith. It's, it's really, in many ways, what James has been talking about. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way up through 5. Faith. Confidence in who God is. Confident that he has power to heal. Confident that he's more than able to take care of this sick person's situation. See, the prayer of faith is offered based on the confidence that God can heal. This text does not imply that if a person just has a a sufficient degree of faith, God's going to automatically answer the prayer. You see, God, here's what we don't like about this passage. God still retains his freedom to do his will and work things out the best ways for his kingdom. Prayer can bring healing and, and praise the Lord, amen, when it happens, right? That's a wonderful thing. But lack of healing to the degree that we would like to see it does not show that the one praying lacks faith. And writer goes on and says, it, neither does it show that prayer is somehow invalid or God is somehow incapable of healing. You see that the prayer is characterized by faith. This ought not, this ought not surprise us at all. He's been addressing this faith all throughout. In fact, Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's what? It's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must what? Believe. Must believe that he is. And that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jesus says in Matthew 21, verse 22, he says, Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. One writer said it's important that the church be praying in faith in response to the word of God, trusting the God of the word through the aid of the spirit. We pray in faith in response to the word of God, trusting the God of the word through the aid of the spirit. And and he went on, this writer did, he emphasized in terms of the God to whom we pray. And it's a reminder for us to understand that it is not the greatness of my faith that moves mountains, but my faith in the greatness of God. Amen? It's the greatness of God. How many people have taken this text and twisted this text and twisted this text and twisted this text? To make it about them. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. In what way will the prayer of faith save him? If you look throughout the Gospels, there are many occasions where Jesus is healing someone. Mark 6, wherever Jesus entered... Verse 56, into the villages, cities, or country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged Jesus that they might 
just touched the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. The word for save here in the text is that phrase, made well. Made well. Mark 9, 34. Jesus said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Mark 10, 52. Jesus said to Bartimaeus, the blind man, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Luke 7, 50, he said to the woman who was a sinner. Remember, remember that sinner, that woman? In Luke chapter 7, at the end of that passage in, in chapter 7, verse 50, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And Jairus' daughter, he says to Jairus' daughter, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. So the prayer of faith will make this sick person well. Who's the sick mentioned in verse 15? Again, I I made reference that there are two different words used here. But this particular word that's used for sick in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the sick. There are two other references that I believe are instructive to help us with some understanding of what James perhaps is speaking to here in chapter 5. Hebrews 12, verse 3, says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary, there's the word, weary and discouraged in your souls. Revelation 2, verse 3, Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus. And he says, Church, you have persevered and have patience. You've labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So the two different words tied together, connected, no doubt. The words perhaps interchangeable as well in how the writer would use them through the scripture. But 14 seems to have more of a physical element attached to it, no doubt. They're sick. They call for the elders to pray. Verse 15 provides additional insight into the kind of sickness being described. This weariness, this, this being worn down, weak, having been laboring for the Lord. There's a genuine spiritual Spiritual aspect to this sickness that James is describing. The prayer of faith will strengthen the weak. But the text says that the Lord is the one who's going to raise him up. That word raise is, is the actual what we see in Matthew 9, 6. Arise, take your bed and go to your house. Mark 1, he came, took her by hand, Peter's mother-in-law. Remember that? He lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her. So the elders... Pray in faith, but the Lord is the one who brings the healing. The Lord is the one who raises up. James, at the end of verse 15, then, supplies a qualifier. He says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, James is not saying that sin is always attached to the sickness. And you can see in John's Gospel, chapter 9, that that's the case. In fact, maybe maybe helpful just to read that verse. But John chapter 9. But Jesus passed by. He saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who sinned? Somebody's got to have sinned here. See, that was the Jewish understanding, really. Somebody had to have sinned. Some went wrong. Some went south. Who sinned? Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned but that the works of God should be revealed in him. 
James here in chapter 5 is making an allowance that it very well may be the case that there's sin related to the sickness. And if so, he says, he'll be forgiven. Who is it that forgives the sick person? It's the Lord. The Lord. The Lord is the one who does that as well. The prayer of faith will save the sick. Will it save the sick every time? James puts no qualifiers here in the text. But the question that gets asked oftentimes is this. What what happens if the sick and weary person does not receive immediate healing? Right? What happens? What happens when the Lord does not immediately raise him up? Is there sin in the life of the elders? Is there sin in the life of the sick person? Is something wrong with the anointing oil? We have some outdated oil here. It's not working. Do the elders just lack faith? How about this sick person just doesn't have enough faith? Has God disappeared? Is God just simply not interested in making this person well? You see, in our search to find out the responsible party, perhaps we've missed the bigger picture in the passage. The call to prayer is a call to trust God, to be content with his will, and to be assured that as the potter, he's the potter, we're the clay. He knows exactly what's needed to bring about his good purposes. James, I believe, is displaying the magnificence of God's power at work in the prayers of God's people. If God should choose not to work, does that mean that we shouldn't pray? Absolutely not. You see, the call for the elders to pray segues into the whole church praying. Look at verse 16. By the way, the literal here is, therefore, you all confess your trespasses to one another and you all pray for one another that you all may be healed. Sometimes in the English translation, we don't catch the plural. Okay? So that's really what it's saying here. All of you, therefore, there's a connection there. Therefore. He's instructing the church to exercise two things here in verse 16. First, confess your trespasses to one another. Agree with God. That's the idea. Agree with God about the sin in your life. And here the call is to confess your trespasses to one another. Oh, but, oh, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That, that, we don't like to do that. Why, why don't we like to do that? Why don't we do that? Because we don't want, we don't want anybody to know. We don't want anybody to know. What do we don't want anybody to know? We don't want anybody to know that we're walking in darkness. So we don't tell anybody. See, the tendency is to keep sin covered. This is an acknowledgement to address sin in your life. In your life as an individual, but yes, your life, our life as a church family. This is one of the many one another's in the scripture. It's not a buffet. We can't pick and choose which one of the one another's we want to do. It's one of the many. Confess. Prayers of confession. 
bringing your deeds into the light, desiring to walk in the truth. Obviously, there has to be some discernment. must be some discernment here in confessing our sins amongst one another, especially if it would be in a large group setting. There would need to be some discernment how that gets handled. But nevertheless, it's something that the Word has called us to be about. And it's coupled with praying for one another. Praying for one another that you may be healed. Notice James doesn't specify what kind of healing. Did you see that in the text? He just says that you may be healed. doesn't say what kind of healing he's referring to. And I believe the main idea is this, that when the church confesses her sins to one another and prays for one another, healing takes place. How so? Because the church that confesses sin, prays for one another, is concerned about sin. They're intentional about walking in the light. When the church starts dealing with her sin and not settling for it, not wallowing in it, when the church is diligent to pray for one another and has a heart to speak with God about these things, trusting Him, depending upon Him, church healing will take place. It will. Lives will be healed, lives will be strengthened, lives will be made whole. Renewed, refreshed. Hearts will be lifted out of the miry swamp and feet will be set anew on the rock, right? And the response to that is what? Praise, rejoicing, gratitude. You see, verse 16 not only calls the church to pray, but it highlights prayer. The power for spiritual healing comes through Prayer, not just the elders' prayers. James says that the church that prays is going to see God work and see God move among them. The text says that the prayers of the righteous are effective. They have great power. And the righteous man here simply designates one who is wholeheartedly committed to God and sincerely seeking to do his will. Now, verses 17 and 18, James provides an example of what this righteous man might look like. We know him as Elijah. This would be a righteous man that everyone in the church would have known. They would have known, been familiar with Elijah. And Elijah is held up at the beginning in verse 17 as a man just like us. He has a nature like ours, just like us. The way that this is constructed, I believe the Lord would want us to see that and to recognize that the power of prayer is available to all of us who are sincerely following the Lord, not just to a special elite class of people. Church, that was, that was broken and torn down a long time ago. Remember that curtain that was torn in the, in, in the temple? Christ died. Remember that curtain that was torn? We have access. We have been given access now to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Whether we're speaking of Elijah, or Abraham, David, Solomon, Peter, Paul, we, we need to understand something here. All of these people share the same nature. They all dealt with sin in their lives just like we deal with sin. In our lives. They, they all were forgiven. They, they all shared trials in their lives. They were people just like you and me. I believe James here. 
would have you see that the supernatural work of God happens through available, surrendered, righteous vessels fully dependent upon God. Church, you might not see yourself confronting 850 prophets of Baal like Elijah did. But the question is, do you trust God? Do you trust him? See, I don't believe God's gone anywhere. I think there's a lack of power in the church today, a lack of power in our lives today, in large part, because we have a very small view of God. Are you content allowing God to work however he might see fit? Are you willing to wait patiently through the suffering and afflictions? Are you going to persevere in prayer for one another and confess your sins to one another, knowing that it brings about healing in the body of Christ? And in the meantime, as you do these things, are you going to walk righteously that your prayers might be heard? What do you mean? Well, the scripture says in 1 John 3.22, he says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because, here's why, he says, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Would not the converse also be true? God doesn't hear when we don't keep his commandments, when we're not pleasing him. You see, there's an element of righteous living that's involved here in our prayers. And so continuing to build upon the magnificent view of God in this text, having already called the church to prayer, I want you to look at how James encourages the church to guard the truth of the gospel. Look at these last two verses. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. The church is described in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, as the pillar and ground of the truth. James says that if anyone wanders from the truth, in the event that it happens, here's the instruction, church. Have your eyes open and your ears on high alert to one in the body who is wandering, straying from the truth. Do you see them when they do wander? He's pointing out the responsibility that's given to each one in the church. Not to just confess sins, And pray for one another, but to pursue those who are wandering from the truth. Hebrews 3 reminds us in verses 12 and 13. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Oh, that's interesting that he says that because that's something that James has mentioned on a few different occasions. Fulfilling the law of Christ, that royal law. James is addressing those in the church, those who are part of the church. They've wandered. Anyone among you wandering from the truth. If left to wander, the trajectory is death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death. You see, men and women of faith may sin, but they do not continue walking habitually in sin. There's a difference. 
This one who wanders is actually referred to as a sinner in verse 20. A sinner. They've made it a habit to walk in darkness. Oh yeah, they're a part of the gathering. They're here. They might even be here this morning. Might be. Might have a chair. James says, remember this. The one who turns or brings back or converts a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. How do you begin turning back a sinner from his wandering? Does it not begin with prayer? You see, 19 and 20 doesn't talk about prayer, but 19 and 20 is full of prayer. We must be in prayer for those who are wandering. It's implied. It's necessary. How do I know it's necessary? See, turning a wanderer back or converting a sinner, church, it's always God's work. Always has been, always will be. And as you humbly pray to God, asking God to turn that wayward heart, you are acknowledging that turning hearts is God's work and not yours. You are God's fellow worker. And you desire to see, in the life of this wanderer, you desire to see the trajectory of his wandering course change. The text also says, not only will you save a soul from death, but you cover a multitude of sins. How is it that you cover a multitude of sins? Surely not you. You do, but perhaps not in the way that you might think you cover a multitude of sins. Let me give you a couple of scriptures that might be helpful. 1 Peter 4, verse 8 says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Which is really pulled from the proverb, Proverb 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Your love for God, your love for the truth of the gospel, your love for God's word, your love for God's people. You, you turn back a sinner out of your love for them. Do we see this? You turn them back out of your love for them. And some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, sinner, they're just they're messy people. Yes, they are. But at this point, I probably need to insert a reminder. God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, this is the core of the gospel. 1 John 3, 16 and 18 says, by this we know love. How, how do we know love? Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. James leaves the church with this magnificent view of God. He calls them to a life of prayer and he encourages them to guard the truth of the gospel. And he leaves them with a reminder that they're in a battle of spiritual proportions. A battle that demands ongoing prayer and a commitment to God's truth. Turn with me for just a moment. Exodus chapter 17. There was a battle that happened on this day back in Exodus 17. Starting in verse 8. A real battle that took place in the time of Moses and Joshua. 
the Amalekites. They came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. You notice those details aren't all that. There are not very many there. Go get some men and go fight with Amalek. Hold that thought. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy or weary. So they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat down. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, the other on the other. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. A real battle took place at the bottom of the hill that day in Rephidim. Real lives were lost, I'm sure, on both sides. And yet the scripture highlights where the victory was won. It wasn't determined with swords and spears. Yes, in part it was fought that way, but it wasn't determined that way. It wasn't accomplished by great military strategy or superior weaponry. The battle was won on the mountain, church. James leaves the church with a reminder of God's mighty power. And he calls the church to pray and guard the truth, turning back those who are wandering. And you know, we are fighting a spiritual battle each and every day, church. This was not just true for James's audience as he's writing led by the Spirit. This is also true for us. Every day, it's a battle fought largely in the unseen realm, but it is real nevertheless. Souls are at stake. Lives are hanging in the balance. Some may be hanging in the balance in your own home. Moses built an altar that day after the battle at Rephidim. He called its name the Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi. Church, this is the same God who has gone before you and secured victory for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Pray diligently, guard the truth with great care. And as you do, church, Remember that it is Yahweh Nisi who has the power to heal. It's Yahweh Nisi who has the power to turn a sinner back to the truth. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would show us more of you. That you would teach us full reliance upon you. That you would remind us to pray without ceasing. Guard the truth. Strengthen us for the battle that we're in. When we grow weak and weary, may the body of Christ stand in the gap and by faith uphold us in prayer. Father, we praise you that you are mighty to save. 
Thanks be to you, God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, amen.